If your period is so painful that it interrupts your activities of daily living, like you have to reschedule plans, there's a problem. That's not normal. In today's podcast episode, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Dr. Jolene Brighton back to the show. She was here for our 200th episode, which proved to be hugely popular. She's now back with a brand new book out, Is This Normal? Judgment-Free Straight Talk About Your Body. It's a brilliant book. I'll put a link to it in the show notes below. You should definitely go and grab yourself a copy. And in today's episode, we're talking about sex, hormones, periods, and everything else you wanted to know. So without further delay, let's dive in. So Dr. Jolene, I am so excited to have you back on the show as a second time guest. It was such a popular episode last time. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited I get to chat with you again and then I'm going to see you in person and like it's going to be a great year with you. (laughs) Oh, amazing. It is going to be a great year. I love your company. Um, So the new book is is just landing here in the UK. Is this normal? Uh, Mm -hmm. Absolutely brilliant book. I guess my first question is what prompted you to write this? Like it's so jam packed full of questions. I think we all have. What prompted you to write it? The book is packed. It turned out to be 126,000 words. And when people are like, oh, are you going to have great recipes? I'm like, there's no recipes. There's no meal plan. I actually made it like when you get the book, you four week meal plan with recipes that are all designed to work with your cycle and your hormones. But we couldn't fit it <laughs> because this book was inspired by all of the questions that I've had that my patients ask, that my readers ask, that everybody on social need. But also I say so often that like my patients, readers, social media followers, they helped write this book because it's all the questions that they they, want to know and that they've brought to me asking, is this normal? And I think back to like when I was navigating getting my period or my first yeast infection, um, all of these things, like (laughs) this is how old I am. There was no internet. It was like the Dewey Decimal System of like navigating a library to try to find answers. And a book like this just didn't exist. And it occurred to me three years ago when I started writing it, a book like this still doesn't exist. And this was during the pandemic. So 2020, everybody's periods start freaking out. I talk about this in the book. I talk about how stress impacts your period. I talk about how being in a pandemic affects your period, uh, having a viral illness, like all of that. Um, and I was setting off to write, you know, the, the proposal for the book. So if people don't know, you write a proposal first, you say, Hey, do you like this idea? And a publisher tells you yes or no, they like this idea. And, um, this idea, I realized like people got really health conscious and they, even more, they had questions. They didn't have access to their providers because unless you had something serious, providers weren't seeing you. And so that I'd already started out and that just fueled things even more because I'm like, never should you ever find yourself in a position where you don't have the information you need about the basics of your body. Like the very basics of what are the parts named? How do they work? How do hormones work? What do you need to do to take care of your body that we really should have all been taught in health ed, but like almost no one got this information. Mm. I've noticed that as well. I think like we all get this education when we're in school. My daughter's going through it at the moment, right? She's mm-hmm. 10. She's at her final year of, of prep school and they're teaching it. But even then, I almost think sometimes I wonder if it's like taught too early because she, I don't know how many times she says to me, she goes, 
mommy, what's the period again? <laughs> and it's yeah. like, oh, we got to go over this again because almost like they're maybe not quite ready for it. Do you know what I mean? And maybe mm-hmm. I think you cover it then again in like a science lesson. And I get why they're teaching it so early, but I think it's it's quite early and not everyone remembers it. Because I know there's plenty of women as adults that don't really understand their menstrual cycle. Yeah, it is so true. I think one, we've got to catch the eight-year-olds who start their periods, right? And because you should have this information before you get your period. Um, and so people who are listening, if you feel like, oh my God, like I'm an adult, I still don't understand my period. I didn't understand my period until I went to medical school. I didn't understand how my body worked. And I was like, I remember sitting in medical school being like, you shouldn't have to go to medical school to understand how your body works. Like, The menstrual cycle, if taught properly, is something that you can wrap your mind around. But I think it's important for people to recognize that um, in medical school, we hear the same things over and over and over because it's repetition that creates that memory. And then we go into experience. Then we go into hands-on with the repetition. And so it's a really great model to teach your period, get the basics, do it again, then you get your period. And I, that speaks volumes that she comes to you and is like, can you, can you tell me about this again? Because a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking to their own parents about this, but you know, that repetition and then the experience reinforcing it, being in it, being able to recognize things. That's why in the book, I take people through, like, you're going to assess your hormones, but you're also going to go through this 28 day program assessing your body, assessing your hormones, trying some things, seeing how they affect you, taking in that data because it's that learn by doing. So my alma mater, that was their, that was their motto, learn by doing. And I love that because that is exactly how most people learn is by actually doing it and going through it, but you're never going to be an expert the first dozen times. It's just not going to be that way. To optimize my sleep each night, there are two things that I do that are my non-negotiables. The first is to get outside and get early access to morning light. And the second one is to block blue light in the evening with blue light blocking glasses. The best lenses I found are those by Bon Charge. They don't let any of that sneaky light come in underneath the lens, which I used to find really annoying when I was reading my Kindle and things like that. These lenses block all the blue light and they're super high quality and the great thing is they look really stylish too. One Charge's glasses are made in optics laboratories in Australia. They're not mass produced in factories in Asia and they have science-backed technology that's been tested to ensure they work. And as I say, they have dramatically improved my sleep. I'm sleeping longer, deeper and I'm feeling refreshed the next morning. And the cool thing about their glasses is they come in non-prescription, prescription and reading options. They also have glasses for every need, including computer glasses to help with digital eye strain, light sensitivity glasses for helping with low mood and migraines and the blue light blocking glasses that I'm using for improving sleep. They also have other amazing products such as blue, low blue light bulbs, red light therapy devices, EMF 5G protection. I have that on my mobile phone. I have that on my kids' mobile phones. And I also wear their uh, Bond Charges EMF blocking bracelet and their 100% blackout sleep masks, all backed by science. And Bond Charge ship worldwide in rapid time with easy returns and exchanges. And you can save a cool 20% off any of their products in their range. Simply go to bondcharge.com forward slash Angela 
and use coupon code ANGELA to save 20%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E dot com slash ANGELA and use coupon code ANGELA to save yourself 20%. Yeah, that's so true. I love that. And I love the 28-day plan that you have at the back of the book. Um, so for women listening to this, um, let's start with kind of what are the, I think actually a really good place to start would be, what does a normal period look like? Because Mm -hmm. a period for a woman is her own lived experience, right? Some people get a lot of clotting. Some women get a very short period. Some women get lots of pain. Like, is there an optimal way your period should look? Because obviously it's one of the vital signs, uh, that you can check in with monthly. Yeah. Let me just say though, that you got period correct. And this might be seem silly, but, um, I am asked this question a lot, like what's normal about a period. And then people are like, are sometimes they're 28 days. Sometimes they're this. And I'm like, we're talking about a menstrual cycle there. I see this a lot on social media where male doctors are like a normal period is roughly, you know, this many days. And I'm like, and they're talking about the cycle. I'm like, that's not the same thing. That's why in the book, there's a whole chapter on periods and a whole chapter on menstrual cycles. They are separate things. They just go, they're like besties, right? They're like separate Mm. entities and yet they do go together. So with a period, you mentioned clots. So clots are something they can be normal. If you're seeing small clots, not abnormal, not anything we worry about. When it's a quarter size or more that we get concerned about. What that tells us is that the bleeding It's pretty heavy because so if you cut your finger, you want a clot. That's a good thing. And if your endometrial lining shedding too quick, your body's going to clot. That's what it's going to do. So this is your body keeping you safe. And it's also a sign that like something's going on. It could be fibroids. I have a fibroid checklist. It could be endo. I have an endo checklist. I literally have so many checklists in this book, but it also could be that you have lower progesterone. If you're using like a super tampon and a pad, that is too heavy. Uh, if you find that you're changing like a tampon every hour, also too heavy. If you find that you're waking in the middle of the night to change things, too heavy. And these are things we're told are normal, that they can actually be early signs that there's an issue going on. Now, in terms of the length of the period, less than two days, that's usually a sign that our estrogen is too low. We're not building up the endometrial lining. So three is a little more ideal. Average period is about five days. If you pass seven, too much bleeding, too long, something else is going on. And I cover all of that in the book so that you can really investigate what what it, what could possibly be going on for you. Because I listed these things, those are potentials, but just having a longer period, that doesn't necessarily mean that like, oh, you must have endometriosis. It could be something that you have estrogen excess going on. It could be something you don't have sufficient progesterone, which, you know, if you're under 45, those are sometimes really easy fixes. And I give guidance in the book for the things that are easy fixes. And then the things that it's like, it's time to see a doctor. Now, the last thing you mentioned was painful periods. We're told all the time. I mean, the Mitel commercials tell us like, well, you guys don't have pharmaceutical ads. Like we have pharmaceutical ads in our country, which are constantly reinforcing that periods are just the worst thing that could ever happen to women. It's like punishment and it's just the bane of your existence. And like, and then here comes like this pharmaceutical and like, oh, the clouds part, now the sun <laughs> shining down. And it's just uh, comical. <laughs> it's really comical when you look at pharmaceutical ads. Um, my son actually, so he's never, he had never seen live TV. And we were traveling in Europe this last summer and he was seeing live TV for the first time. And he's like, oh yeah, there's some commercials. 
We came back in the US. I can't remember where we were, but he saw live TV and he's like, why are there, he's 10. Why are there all these commercials, mom, about like diseases and drugs? And like, he's so upset. And I'm like, this should be the outrage everybody has about Mm. this, but also the negative messaging that gets reinforced, you know, whether it's from our family, our friends, pharmaceutical ads, our own doctors being like, periods are just awful. No, if your period is so painful that it interrupts your activities of daily living, like you have to reschedule plans, there's a problem. That's not normal. And periods shouldn't be so painful that you have to pop a pharmaceutical. If it is, we have to investigate. So it could be um, adenomyosis. It could be uh, endometriosis. Like it could be something else. And you should know that because those are different conditions and how we approach that is very different than the most common cause of painful periods, which is elevated prostaglandins. Yeah, I'm so glad that you clarified that. And in the book, actually, for, for those of you listening to this, you know, um, Dr. Dr. Brighton goes into what PCOS is. As you say, you have these amazing checklists so people can have a look and see. So you know, many do checklists. I, <laughs> so many checklists. Might I have adenomyosis? Might I have endometriosis? And some of these conditions right, are really common. They go together. I mean, for example, mm-hmm. we, we were talking offline. I have PCOS and endometriosis, and I don't think that's yeah. an uncommon thing to find. Yeah. So a lot of these conditions go together. We see TCOS and Hashimoto's. Um, We see PCOS and ADHD going together. We see ADHD, autism, and PMDD going together. And so what is this telling us? One, there are common root causes to these conditions. And two, hormones are a really big deal. Beyond just your menstrual cycle, you have receptors all over your body, all of your systems for these hormones, and they can impact those systems and those systems can impact your hormones. And the problem is with Western medicine, we get compartmentalization where it's like, oh, you've got gut problems. Let's treat that as a gut problem. But it's like, but it's my thyroid. I'm constipated because it's my thyroid. And why am I gut symptoms not getting better? Because, well, that's an endocrine problem. So we're not going to talk about the gut because you have an endocrine problem, but But like, I have to activate my thyroid by way of the gut. That's one of the major organs that act. So I have to have my gut healthy. It's just like this compartmentalization. And so we absolutely see these things go together. And what's the good news about that is that a lot of the same things that can help one condition. So for example, I talk about in the book, um, the connection with ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, and PMDD. And also that your medication, if you're ADHD, a lot of my patients would be like, I just feel like half the month, my medication doesn't work. So I got into the research and as it turns out, yeah, in the luteal phase, medication doesn't work as well, but how can we help with ADHD symptoms? How can we help with, uh, all of that same stuff we would do to help with PMS and to help with PMDD. So those same diet and lifestyle things can actually improve your ADHD. Some of the sensory issues that can go with autism. I'm not saying like, we're going to cure these things, but I am saying that you do have a lot of power in your ability to feel better in your body, to function at your normal, your optimal. And that's something that I want to be really clear on uh, because some people are like, is this normal? Are you saying that there's just one normal? And I'm like, no, I am not a fool. Okay. (laughs) Like there is not (laughs) the whole program is to help you understand what's your normal and what's not. And all those checklists as well is so that you can go to your doctor and when your doctor's like, Oh, that's normal. You're like, no, no. In fact, sir, it is not normal. I mean, it might be a woman, but like, sir, just sounds funnier, Uh, but it is not normal. And 
here's the list of symptoms. So those checklists can help you dial it in, but they also are the data that you can bring to your provider to have a more productive conversation and be able to advocate for yourself. Yeah, that's amazing. That's so empowering um, for women. I wanted to talk to you there because you were touching on the link between Hashimoto's um, thyroid health and um, and kind of period problems and the link. And obviously there's a link with fertility yeah. as well. And in the book, you have this, this pyramid, which I think is super useful in terms mm-hmm. of like looking at insulin and adrenal function, thyroid health, and then kind of the, the sex hormones are kind of almost the cherry on top of the cake, right? We yeah. can't necessarily look there. <laughs> They're the sexy thing you want to go after, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just sitting at the top there. <laughs> um, so with that, when when women are looking at this, you've obviously put yeah. like as the kind of base foundation, the insulin and adrenal function, which affects mm-hmm. all your stress and your blood glucose management. Um, can you just explain the the link there between like thyroid health, uh, the menstrual cycle and also fertility? Yes, yeah, so for sure. And just to touch on, you know, that pyramid of what you were saying, and this, this is going to help with like understanding fertility is that the pyramid, the foundation being adrenals and insulin, you are a complex biological system that, you know, if you have ovaries and a uterus, your body is like, we, we need to make babies. Okay. And even if you're like, I don't want babies, um, your biology is like, we should do that. Like that would be great. Um, your choice. And if you don't want babies, should we just don't tell your body. We just like still set it up for fertility. Cause that is a sign of optimal health. So with that, Things like blood sugar, like how much food is in the environment, what kind of food, how how much quality food is there, stress, sleep, all of that is going to impact the system, which is why it's the foundation. And if we don't affect the foundation uh, in a very positive way, if it's nothing but negative inputs, then what we see is right above that is the thyroid. And the thyroid starts to get strained when the adrenal glands are like, we are in hyperdrive and the, adre- the, you know, the adrenal glands are in hyperdrive because you're like, oh, I'm in stress. And the thyroid's like, oh, stress, I'm going to slow you down. So you rest. Like we're not going to make these same conversions in the same way. Now, thyroid hormone is necessary for follicle development to get to an egg that is healthy enough to ovulate. You have to have thyroid hormone. And so with, and so it's really important to understand is that in the brain, uh, if people have had their thyroid tested, they've had TSH most likely is all they've had thyroid stimulating hormone, which is a pituitary hormone, even though it has thyroid in the name, it is not a thyroid hormone. It just tells you how your brain's communicating with your thyroid. The same mechanism that causes TSH to go up also causes prolactin to go up. Prolactin is our milk making hormone super awesome to have if you are postpartum and you are nursing. We want to have that. If you are not, we shouldn't have that. Prolactin can prevent ovulation and therefore menstruation. So it's very important for everyone to understand ovulation comes first, then you menstruate. You do not menstruate regularly if you do not ovulate regularly. Is it possible to not ovulate and then get a period? Sometimes, one off, but not consistently. So Without the thyroid hormone, we're going to have that issue with ovulation. Without ovulation, we can never get the corpus luteum. So once we ovulate, a temporary endocrine structure is left behind in the ovaries that secretes progesterone. So without thyroid hormone, you don't get progesterone. And progesterone needs to be at ample amounts for your body to be able to use that thyroid hormone effectively during the luteal phase. So it is all connected. And it's why I approach from a bottom up. And I talk about that pyramid. So 
the sex hormones, I want everyone to understand there's a whole chart in the book. That's like, here's your, you know, cyclical symptom relief chart of like, you've got acne, uh, you've got PMS, you've got periods pain. Like here's what you do about right now. Cause I'm a big fan of like, you should feel good as possible right now. And then we need to work on that foundation. And this is why so many people find themselves spinning their wheels where they're like, I've tried everything and nothing works. And like, I'm not getting better or I got a little bit better, but not all the way there. It's because they haven't tended to that foundation, which is the um, boring stuff. It's not sexy. It's not exciting. Mm. Instead, like, honestly, people like, it's the kind of stuff that I'll see people say like, yeah, yeah, that's nothing new. I've heard it before. And I have patients say this sometimes. And I always say, and how well are you doing it? And that's usually when they pause and they're like, oh, I'm like, you wouldn't be here if, if it was that easy. Because honestly, maintaining these things in the kind of environment we live in, it's a challenge. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And just as you're saying that, I mean, it does, it does sort of make me think about, you know, women who are in their 40s, for example, this is a really difficult time if they're thinking of either a first child, if they've um, decided yeah. to sort of postpone that for whatever reason, um, or they're thinking of adding to their family in their 40s. Quite often, not only are they experiencing potentially, you know, some degree of disruption with hormones, but they're also really phenomenally busy. I just think like, being in my 40s myself, like, it's just like a busy decade, right? It just seems yeah. to have so much in it in terms of like, the responsibilities that you have, either with your work or your business, the children that yeah. you may have already and everything they're doing, your parents are kind of aging, there just seems to be so much going on. And mm -hmm. I'm, I guess for, for those listening that maybe want to introduce another family member or a new family member in their 40s, what do you think is the key thing that they need to really focus on? Would it be that adrenal function and stress management and sleep to enhance fertility at that stage? Oh gosh. I mean, yes. And there's so much more. So, um, I had my second baby at 40 and people know I've been on a fertility journey as well in my 40s. Cause like, why, like, why could not my 30 something year old self be like, yes, I want to grow this family. I mean, I, I had a child with a chronic illness and we're finally at a place and, and I'm like, oh, I want to grow my family. And I'm like, who decides to do this? Like, I'm like at 42 and here I am. So I could talk, we could have a whole podcast just about this <laughs> whole entire journey. Um, okay. So if you're not sleeping, I have a whole diagram in the book, this diagram, uh, you were at the health optimization summit. So you saw like the, um, I feel like archaic is the word for it. Like you felt so I had the first iteration of this diagram that like I was using, um, well, it was even then at that point, probably a third iteration, but still wasn't pretty. I actually took that diagram and I sent it to, um, a friend who hand illustrated all of the, um, so the, the beautiful clitoris, like a friend of mine, he hand illustrated that. Um, so there, these are like, he drew all these things and the sleep one, I was like, can you just make this? So it's like palatable for like the average person, because I teach this in medical conferences because, um, and, and you know, and biohacking definitely want to teach this there. Cause so many people are like sleep, whatever. Everyone talks about sleep. It's not that big of a deal. Like just get eight hours, blah, 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 blah. You even hear doctors saying that like, you're fine with seven hours. And I'm just like, you know what? You just tell yourself that because of like the shit sleep that we all got for so long in medical school. Like we just are lying so to ourselves. It's the so, same with lawyers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
I had like this bad <laughs> honor not to sleep. I look back and I'm like, you know what? If I could tell my 12 year old self something, it would just be like sleep. Like, isn't it? Isn't it sleep, crazy? I remember when I so, had a when I had a baby because of all the years as a corporate lawyer when the midwife first came round to the house and she was like, make sure you go nap in the afternoon. And I was like, no, no, it's fine. I've got the all nighters covered. I'll be fine. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah. <laughs> Eight weeks in, that was just awful. Yeah, except you're like recovering from the most <laughs> yeah. intense thing your body has ever done. You have to make milk and you have to function at a high level with your brain for not just yourself, but also a small human in ways you've never done before. Like mm. it's just like maddening what we put new moms through. Um, so, but we were talking about sleep. So this diagram that I've like talked about so much, like, let me get into it. So I showed, I pulled from the research, like what happens when you have chronic sleep interruption or disrupted sleep, which we commonly see in night shift workers, which we absolutely need. These people are amazing. I think they need to be compensated more when you get into the research. So this, this is how we study and understand the negative effects of not getting quality sleep. We see inflammation goes up, insulin resistance goes up, thyroid function goes down. We can develop anovulatory cycles and infertility. Our adrenals definitely take a hit. That's like no surprise to anyone. We uh, produce more free radicals. We age, we start accelerating our aging. And if you talk about accelerated aging, that's going to have a negative impact on our mitochondria, which from biology, people may remember is the powerhouse of your cells, but it's so much more than that. And where it is very much concentrated brain, heart, and ovaries. So if you want to take care, if you don't want to have, so like, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't care about fertility, friend, do you care about dementia? Because the same stuff that keeps your ovaries like young. Okay. And I, for people who are like, we don't want to be young forever. Or, you know, some people get on that. Like you want to be less than your biological age. Okay. Like whatever your biological age is, it is better to be less than that um, because that means that what you're doing every day is combating the negative effects of your environment that you do not have control over, like environmental toxins, for example. So mm. if we want to keep our brain young, our heart young, our ovaries young, it's all the same stuff in terms of taking care of the mitochondria. So yes, we want to take care of our sleep, our blood sugar, absolutely have to take care of your blood sugar. Um, that is like, that is not, in the US, people are like, well, you know, I'm not diabetic. I'm not pre-diabetic. And I'm like, you have like, you have no idea how easy it is in the environment we live in to end up with blood sugar dysregulation and for it to not show up on our screening test. So I could do a hemoglobin A1C. I could do a fasting glucose. We can look at your insulin. Not a lot of people are looking at fasting insulin. That's a really good one to look at, to see how that hormone's performing. But this is where continuous glucose monitors can come in because they can show that like, yeah, overall you might be averaging fine blood sugar, but you have wild spikes and dips. And these are people that are like, oh, I can't sleep. I'm having anxiety. Like I'm um, having mood swings. I'm irritable. It's your blood sugar friend. And as long as your blood sugar is doing that, your adrenal glands have to respond with cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine. So we've got cortisol and insulin doing this interchange. And as long as they're swinging, they're hitting the thyroid, they're hitting these, the sex hormones as well. Would you like a snapshot of where you are in your health journey right now with personalized advice from me on how to improve? Go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com and take my 60-second biohacking quiz and I will send you your free health score and personalized report with recommendations on each area of my SHIFT protocol for health optimization. SHIFT contains the five key pillars you need to focus on for optimal health. Sleep, hormones, 
insights to track, how to fuel your body with the right nutrition, light, hydration and breathwork, and training for your body and mind. Go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com to find out your score in each area and get personalized recommendations from me on how to improve. It takes less than 60 seconds and you can take the quiz as many times as you want to and track your improvement by following my guidance. Simply go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com to get started. Interesting. On that point, actually, what have you found uh, leads to glucose drops uh, in the middle of the night? This is a, a common thing that I think people experience. Sometimes I know from speaking to some of the sensor companies, actually, if you're lying on the sensor, you can get a false reading that your blood glucose yeah. has dropped. But I know like last night, for example, I definitely saw a drop in my own because you could see it then mirrored with a rise afterwards, right? And actually my recovery yeah. was poor. My HRV was poor. I hadn't had a good wind down routine last night. That's for sure. <laughs> it just didn't happen. Um, I but- hate when like I see the poor recovery index or like <laughs> hate heart rate variability for people listening to HRV. Like oh. I just say like tracking the data like is like the it's like the mom I never had um where it's like you need to rest today and then I do Mm. it and then all my markers are better and I'm like oh look at that like look at that if I just like listen to my body how amazing um yeah (laughs) but you wouldn't uh, do it unless it told that's the thing right if you're like me you wouldn't do it unless like my week went from 89 (laughs) I think I went like 89 percent in the green yesterday to 30 percent overnight and I was like okay maybe I need to take it a little bit easier today (laughs) oh man I'd love to lie and be like no I wouldn't push myself indefinitely like I am launching a book right now like like like, you don't do these (laughs) things if you're not someone who pushes yourself and yet like I do need to be monitoring my data, especially as we get older. These things change. Your resiliency is not what it once was. And that's like a womp womp kind of feeling. And yet it is what it is. Um, so this is something that's really interesting what you bring up. Um, when people wake up and they're saying like, oh, I wake up at night and I'm having hot flashes. I ask the question, like, do you wake up and you're like hot, sweaty, maybe, um, and that's it. Or do you wake up and you're sweat, sweaty and you're hot and maybe you feel kind of panicked or irritable and you're hungry, the latter is a cortisol issue, not an estrogen issue going on. And so the the former, that is what we see as a perimenopausal symptom, which by the way, people are like, there's been a lot of normalization of like, oh, that's just perimenopause. Yet when you really break down a lot of these symptoms of perimenopause, the temperature dysregulation that's coming from the brain, brain fog, losing your keys, um, you know, all of these kinds of like anxiety, like these are signs that the brain is struggling. And that to me, while I feel like society is so flippant with like, oh, it's just perimenopause. I'm like, why don't you take the pause in that word and pause because that is brain dysfunction. And we as providers should be always asking what's coming down the pipeline. And what's coming down the pipeline is not good if the brain is already struggling right now because it's not getting the stimulation by the hormones. Now, when you're waking up at night and you're feeling that it's a cortisol related issue because your blood sugar dropped, you likely are skipping meals in the day. Maybe you're not eating enough protein, fat, and fiber at every meal. Like there's things going on that are leading to blood sugar dysregulation. Maybe you already have insulin resistance. Maybe you already um, have inflammation going on. Maybe you had a really stressful day. You're not managing your stress. So in those situations, I, uh, so in my first book beyond the pill, that one recipes made it in, um, there's a recipe called, um, an upgraded turmeric latte. 
or upgraded golden milk. I don't remember which it is, but this is what it is. And so, um, I have patients drink turmeric. They can add any milk that they like. Um, I'm actually a fan of like the turmerics that have mushrooms in them. Um, because I'm just like the more mushrooms we can get the better people. Like, oh, yeah, I love mushrooms. Uh, totally. In- Yeah. I mean, they're so good for your health. My husband's always like, I don't want to eat mushrooms. I'm like, but people who eat mushrooms every day are living longer and healthier and happier. So like eat the mushrooms. Also you have to like, you have to show the kids we eat mushrooms. So anyhow, uh, (laughs) turmeric milk of your choice, collagen, and you don't even have to have milk. If you're like, "Eh, I don't want to, but you need to have some fat in there. So maybe you put butter instead, like your ghee, um, collagen. So getting yourself collagen, that's going to give you roughly like 15, 20 grams of protein coming in. And collagen is higher in glycine. It has a good source of glycine. Glycine also helps you go to sleep, stay asleep. Mm. Like it's good for the brain. Um, so we're going to bring in the fat, the collagen, and then the turmeric is anti-inflammatory. Add a little black pepper to help with absorption even more. And maybe a little bit of honey. If you're someone that's like, oh, like I like the taste. It isn't going to hurt your blood sugar. If you're doing like, you know, a half to a teaspoon of honey with 20 grams of protein, like that's an ideal setting to bring in sugar and it may actually be helpful. But, um, you know, we're all told about intermittent fasting and like, oh, like that's, that's the, you know, Mecca of health. But not in this situation. If you're waking up with hunger signals, you need, like you're getting a stress response in the middle of your of the night. You should not spike cortisol, epinephrine, and norepinephrine while your melatonin's up. They cannot both be where they need to be. Melatonin, yes, it's great for sleep. It's also a potent antioxidant. It's protecting those mitochondria. It's protecting your brain. It's protecting your ovaries. We actually use. Um, so if you're in your forties, melatonin is something we would use exogenous melatonin. You would supplement with melatonin to support ovarian quality, ovarian health, or specifically egg quality is what we want to be protecting. Um, and if you are someone like, uh, so inositol is something that can help with blood sugar. It also can help with sleep. And so if you are someone who has PCOS, it may be helpful with dinner to be taking inositol. So in the evening, mm-hmm. taking inositol as well. If you don't have PCOS, it can help with sleep. It's also great for helping with sleep. Um, but those are some things to bring in. But what we want to do is we want to be helping So when cortisol goes down at night, we no longer have the anti-inflammatory effect of cortisol. So bringing in the anti-inflammatory food, drinking that beverage, like an hour or two before bed, the trick is you don't know when I have to get up to use the bathroom at night, Um, but just something so that after dinner, you have a little more fuel coming in so that the adrenal glands don't feel like they need to pop off like that while you work on the lifestyle stuff during the day. But if you can't get to that optimal sleep, it's going to be so much like, how do you even get the energy to be, we're like exercise tomorrow. And you're like, but I didn't sleep. Like I'm so tired. Like it's hard to do the things that really move the needle when you don't have the energy. And then as I explained before, poor sleep is going to reinforce all the things that lead to the blood sugar dysregulation. I love that. That's super helpful. And we'll, we'll find that recipe and link to it in the show notes because uh, it sounds incredible. I think inositol, I definitely have used like with PCOS. I love it. I actually like magnesium inositol and um, uh, what was the other one? you And glycine, just like really sweet for sleeping yeah. and mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I, even just like tincturing reishi and chaga in at night, yeah. just so chilled. Um, yeah. So thank you for all of those. Um one thing you mentioned in the book, this was uh, this was quite interesting, was actually seed cycling to improve mm-hmm. symptoms of vaginal dryness, which I thought was interesting, to increase lubrication. That was something I sort of picked out because this, again, is a really common thing, right, for women in their 40s. 
Yes. So a vaginal dryness, by the way, is a really common thing, depending on where you're at in your cycle. Um, and so I think often, again, back to marketing ads and everything, people think like vaginal dryness only happens to like, quote, old ladies. And it's like, well, no, because you might be like the week before your period and you're like, why is everything dry? Because that's how the vagina works. <laughs> like This is normal. Um, so with that, uh, I just want to be clear that like if you're postmenopausal and your problem is, is that your ovaries are not going to make um, hormones ever anymore, we're not going to be able to like seed cycle our way out of that. If you need hormone replacement therapy because you've got uh, friable tissue, that means like it tears really easily. You're getting vaginal atrophy. It's shrinking. It becomes really tight, painful. You're getting UTIs. Like you may do well to have like an estriol suppository or some cream. That's E3. It's a really weak estrogen. It's the one associated with pregnancy. Um, but it can be really lovely for the tissues as can DHEA. And I talk about those in the book, but if you're before menopause and, and the ovaries should still be doing their job, seed cycling can help help with that. So it has um, phytoestrogens in the flax seeds that are there. It's important for people to understand because they're like, oh, so if I get, if I eat flax seeds, then my like estrogen is going to go up and we can test for that. That's not how it works. It's kind of similar to endocrine disruptors, except endocrine disruptors are haters and the phytoestrogens are like cheerleaders. They're like, yeah, go. Um, and so what happens is they actually stimulate the receptors and they elicit change to the DNA, similar to what estrogen would do. Um, and so it's important for people to understand that phytoestrogens can stimulate in a positive way, especially because what we're talking about with seed cycling is going to have fiber. It's going to have other things in there that helps with optimizing your estrogen. So it's not just stimulating the receptors, but it's also helping move out any estrogen that you're making or those endocrine disruptors that can come in. And then endocrine disruptors, they're stimulating tissues to just misbehave. They're like that. They're like that bad friend that comes in and like influences your child. And you're like, don't hang out with them. Like you <laughs> think they're cool, but they're not. <laughs> yeah, they're the baddies. Let's talk about those briefly. And then I want to ask you about uh, progesterone, endocrine disruptors. They're everywhere, yes. right? In personal care products, um, in yeah. our water, yeah. um, plastics, people drinking from plastic bottles, which actually is, you know, we're approaching now spring and summer. That's quite difficult for people on the go. Yeah. Um, yeah. What What do you think? What are the key things people need to leave? Reusable out? water bottles, people, please. I actually had somebody ask me, it's the first time I've ever been asked this before. And I was surprised because they were like, well, if I use a plastic bottle, but I've been using it for a while, then I've leached out all the chemicals, right? Already. And I'm like, oh, oh my, my gosh. gosh, no one's ever asked me that. But there are definitely people who believe that. No, it's okay. in the it's in the bottle. But you know, so I think like people spend a lot of time like we talk a lot about personal care products. We talk about plastics, you know, cleaning up the kitchen, what's in your environment. And something that I just don't think gets talked about enough is flame retardants. And, um, and you know, the, the research, we need more, we need human studies, we need replication of these things. But I think it's important for people to understand that we knew decades ago that in our pets, the animals in our home, they get exposed to flame retardants. That would lead to hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's in dogs and hyperthyroidism or Graves in cats. We understood autoimmunity, endocrine disorder. That was happening in our pets. What are they? They're the smallest, they're like canaries in the coal mine. They're the smallest little creatures spending the most time on the floor. So these environmental toxins are going to accumulate and so show signs and symptoms much sooner. And yet in humans, 
we've now come to understand that, oh yeah, this does affect the thyroid. Yes, it does. And so there's been animal studies showing that it actually can cause oxidative stress in our ovaries. So that means poor egg quality. And so often I'm so sick of this, like the dose makes the poison. I'm like, you know, maybe once upon a time that was like accurate. But when you live in an environment where you're inundated and nobody's keeping tabs on the fact that you're sleeping on a mattress for like eight to 10 hours, that's in soaked in flame retardants, that your children are wearing clothes over how how long of their lifetime? that their pajamas are flame, flame retardants, um, that your pet's beds have flame retardants, that your couch has flame retardants, that all of this stuff is settling in the dust. Now, like, you know, you're, you're in inhaling this, like these kinds of things have a cumulative burden on the body. And that is conveniently not studied. It's conveniently not studied. Like, you know, we'll hear like, oh, well, it's so little that's in your skincare product and they wouldn't have allowed it unless it was safe. Yeah. At that level. But nobody accounted for the dozen of products that contain that same exact thing that you are exposed to every day, nor did they say what happens when, and a lot of women are brand loyal, you're exposed to that for 30 years, every Mm. single day. We have no idea. Saying this dose makes the poison is total BS because we are exposed to so many things over and over and over. And there are multiple products that we're being exposed to with that. But the flame retardant thing, I think we've got options now. I think for a long time, people weren't really talking about this as much because um, what options were there? Like in the United States, it was like, you have to get a mattress with flame retardants. You don't now. You don't need to buy your children. There's no need to put your child in a flame retardant like a pajama set. Instead, get them tight fitting pajamas, not like, you know, restrictive, but they should be like form fitting so that they're not loose and, you know, put a, put a down comforter over them. If they're not an infant, like do something else other than getting these like synthetic fleeces that are like dipped in these chemicals, because we don't have studies about like, wow, you're living, you're living in, cause like, I don't know about you, but my kids, they, they, on Sundays, they're just staying in their pajamas unless I force them out of it. Like <laughs> that's something that like, <laughs> that's a lot of exposure. And so For people to understand, um, not only is it important to clean up that environment in terms of your exposure, opening your windows once a week is super, super important and making sure you're vacuuming regularly if, because odds are your couch is going to have flame retardants. Like these things are going to have flame retardants in that. And that is something that you can do to help mitigate the effects on you. Yeah. Thank you for those. Super important. Um, with the, um, endocrine disrupting chemicals you also talk about like liver health and I think this is something in the book you have lots of things to help women support the health of their liver which is important not just for detoxifying these sorts of things but also excess estrogen and the impact of the estrobolone Mm -hmm. um, that part of the microbiome that helps to regulate estrogen Um, what would be obviously alcohol is probably not the best thing to be consuming Uh, what would be your kind of top three things (laughs) I say, oh yeah, we all know that. We all know that. (laughs) I'm doing an experiment of one year with no alcohol and I'm kind of eight months into it. And I have to say it's, it's been a really interesting journey because my husband and I loved buying kind of fine wine, putting it away, storing it. It was kind of our thing and, and, and enjoying the occasional glass together. But both of us now, like eight months in are like, "Mm, I don't even know I'll ever go back to it. We're kind of there, but 
Yeah. It's so tricky with that. Uh, it's so funny because my whole life I was like, I don't care about wine. Um, and then I spent some time in France and I feel like I actually drank wine. Like it was actually like really good wine. And by Actual the way, everybody, I like lived on the central coast of California. So I know about like California wines and all that, but like there was just something different. It's also lower alcohol in a lot of uh, instances, like when you're in Europe compared to the U S. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I know that though, where you're like, Oh, it's nice. I actually, I enjoy this now. Um, so yes, alcohol definitely. I mean, what we know about it in terms of its negative impacts on their body. I mean, I mean, people know all those things. What a lot of people don't recognize is that one drink can increase your estrogen levels over 10% because the liver is like, I have to, I have to take care of this toxin that you just consumed because it is. And, mm. at the, and at the expense of taking care of this estrogen. Um, and so that's, that's part of that cancer complication. Um, it, it goes beyond that because it's also disrupting sleep and melatonin and all of those things. What's interesting though, is that um, I was just in the Daily Mail UK because one of their writers decided to give um, alcohol for a year and she was like, sex got better. And so they wanted to interview someone and they were like, why does, like, why is sex better when you're off of alcohol? And I was like, oh, let me tell you, it can be so much better, which flies in the face of so many doctors who will be, if you tell them like, I'm having pain with sex, sex is not like not enjoyable. I feel tense. I'm having anxiety. Like I cover all of this stuff in the book of like, what's gets classified as like sexual dysfunction. I don't feel like it's dysfunctional as much as it's adaptational. And if that, and the doctors will often say like, have a glass of wine and just relax. And it's like, yeah, having a glass of wine can get harder to have an orgasm. It can take longer and then you're in your head more or it's just not enjoyable or you're having like problems self-lubricating and you don't have lube at home and now it's even more painful. Um, but I'm like that whole like doctors being like, just have a glass of wine. I'm like, it really serves the heterosexual couple and the male counterpart of the heterosexual couple of like, oh, you can have sex with that, but you can't have an orgasm or pleasure. Why, why are we doing this if it's not fun for you? Mm. Sorry, you're breaking up slightly there. Oh, um, no. It should be. It should be fun. It should be fun. And there's a whole section in the book all about sex and what's normal. There's I want to come back to – Sorry? The whole first section of the book is the whole first sex, section. Exactly. It's massive. And uh, I would definitely encourage people to go because and read that, because if you've got any questions relating to sex, everything is there. I mean, one question I have for you, and then I want to come back to progesterone because this has been on my mind, a question that I get asked a lot um, is in relation to sex with men, we look at the optimal amount of sex that they have in terms mm. of regulating testosterone and, and sperm production. Is there an optimal... Health and prostate health. Is yeah. there an optimal amount for a woman? That is such an interesting question because first it goes to like, how do we define sex? So in the book, there's a chapter called sex of all kinds, because the way so many people are talking about sex is the very like heteronormative approach of like vaginal penetration by a penis. And then they're told things like foreplay and it negates the fact that foreplay is sex. That's a form of sex. So, and I say like, sex is how you define it. Like it's up to you to define what sex is for you. And so what, but when we start to frame, like, okay, well, what's the optimal amount? Well, first, like, what is sex and why are you pursuing sex? So women, uh, we do like orgasms, um, but people in general, when you ask about sexual satisfaction, 
orgasms are not the most important thing of what people rate as like a satisfying session. What's more important is empathy, connection, uh, intimacy. So actually having that connection. And so why this is important is because you might have a makeout session where you're rubbing up on somebody and you never achieve orgasm, but you feel connected. You feel like it was intimate. You feel like, oh, that was really satisfying. And so for women, it's a lot more complex. So for men, we're like, ah, about 21 times a month, you should ejaculate because that's good for the prostate. We don't want you to get prostate cancer. Um, <laughs> pretty easy to measure. But for women, they seek out sex for different reasons. They, um, what brings them pleasure and satisfaction that can be rated differently. And so when it comes to like, what is the optimal amount of sex? What do you want to be having? And what does that look like for you in terms of what sex is? Because if you ask somebody like with a severe case of endometriosis, what is the optimal amount of sex that you would like to be having? And they're like, I have pain with zero. Mm. Zero when I have vaginal penetration is my definition of sex. But for them, if it's oral sex, if it, uh, you know, it's maybe using a toy, it's manual stimulation, it's something else, then that number changes. And so I think it's just important when we frame it that way of like, what is sex for you? And what's the optimal amount of times that you want to have that kind of experience? Because um, it's certainly, you know, there's research that shows that orgasming multiple times a week is going to be beneficial for your hormones, your immune system function. It is going to be beneficial for um, anti-aging. Uh, so many things, like if you want to live longer, like have more orgasms. Yes, this is all true. But in terms of like life, it's not just about the length of how long we live, but it's also the quality. And so looking at like, what does it take for you to have that quality experience? What constitutes a quality sexual experience and rating that for yourself? That's yeah, a long I answer. <laughs> I love it. No, but it's a great answer. And I think the way you break it down in the book is it's, it's amazing. It's, it's brilliantly done because as you say, it's so different for, for different people. I guess my question there was like, does it regulate women's hormones? So is there a certain amount? Mm. You mentioned those benefits and like the skin health actually was in there. That was really appealing. Like it helps yeah. you stay like looking younger. Friends, it's why um, I glow. <laughs> that's why you glow. <laughs> And you have, for those of you that can't see, Dr. Jane has very glowing skin. Um, I was commenting on that when we first joined. Um, moving on to progesterone, why is it that so many women cannot tolerate progesterone? And what's going on there? Because we were talking kind of earlier in this in this interview around the fact that particularly, you know, sometimes if women are very stressed, they're going to have less progesterone. If they're not ovulating, yeah. they're not getting so much progesterone in perimenopause. And so the immediate thing then is to think about progesterone and we can talk about the different forms, but mm -hmm. some women just really don't seem to tolerate it. Yeah. Okay. So one thing with progesterone, um, the most common bioidentical progesterone prescribed in the United States is Prometrium. And that's going to be based in a peanut oil and peanuts can be like, some people are going to feel like that's in, like, th they don't respond well because it's inflammatory for the system. Um, so it depends on how progesterone is given. So sometimes people are like, Oh, progesterone didn't help my anxiety at all. When you ask, well, they were using a vaginal suppository. And in that case, a trochee under the tongue or oral would have been better because we need to get the metabolites of progesterone to stimulate the brain, to make us feel calm, to help us sleep. 
However, there are also, um, so there's practitioners too, that just go like really hard and heavy with hormones. I'm always like slow and low, like let's start at a low dose and let's progressively increase things. Um, so instead of jumping right on like 200 milligrams of progesterone, starting at like a hundred milligrams of oral progesterone, maybe better so that you can, you can see like, how does that affect you? Now, the other thing we know is that with some, uh, women, and this tends to be true among the neurodivergent community that um, they utilize progesterone a little differently in the brain and that they don't necessarily, it's not the response that we would expect. And so this is one of the theories of why PMDD is more prevalent among those who also have a neurodivergent diagnosis. And there is there's not enough research here to really tell us why is it that their brain isn't using progesterone in quite the same way or that it's getting overwhelmed? Like if you do too much progesterone, it feels overwhelming to their brain. They feel mm. overwhelmed. And so That's their senses get overwhelmed. It's slightly yes. edgy actually. Yeah. yeah. And so like titrating that down. And this is sometimes where using like a compounding pharmacy is really, really helpful. The FDA here was like kind of on a witch hunt for a while against compounding pharmacies. And I'm like, some people need that. Like even for thyroid, like it just, what we're doing isn't working in terms of the standard doses and we have to change things up. And so sometimes you need to go even lower and slowly build it up. If somebody is still menstruating, um, and we want to, we want to mimic their cycles. So sometimes practitioners are like, oh, just take progesterone all the time. It feels great. Like, and yeah, for some people it does, but, um, waiting until like that midpoint in their cycle and then bringing in progesterone and mimicking like that 12 days that they would get exposed to progesterone and then doing the withdrawal when their period would come can sometimes Oh, excuse me, <clears throat> can sometimes be a lot more beneficial to the system because um, hormone replacement therapy, when we're using it when the, the ovaries just stop altogether, it is replacing. But in the perimenopausal phase, like we're not making enough progesterone, but those ovaries may still be trying and you can support them with vitamin C, vitamin B6. Um, again, making sure your stress is low, getting with community, like doing things that build you up, that make you feel wonderful, um, reinforcing that. And then progesterone reinforces that doing those things. And then maybe using a lower dose of progesterone. And then over time you may find like, oh yes. Okay. Now I need to increase because the ovaries are, <laughs> they're, they're less, uh, they're less apt to make that progesterone. That's great. Thank you. And what about with, um, progesterone cream? So I know like certain practitioners, um, have progesterone creams that you can buy. Um, I interviewed Dr. Michael Platt recently and his research around progesterone and adrenaline. Um, and obviously they don't like progesterone creams. It seems a bit controversial how well it's actually absorbed. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, there's the question of like, how well is it actually absorbed and um, how well is it mixed? Right. Because like, especially like when you're buying a tube off of Amazon and maybe it's like a few months out from its expiration date, you have to ask like how much is actually biologically available in there. Um, how, you know, well dispersed is it? So we want to make sure that we're getting the, the a consistent dose in that. Um, I will say that like, you know, some of it is definitely absorbed, but how much, how much are we getting? That's why it's controversial is that like, we don't like to be willy-nilly with these things. We don't like to be mm. like, oh yeah, one day you're getting 10 milligrams. The next day you're getting 25 milligrams. Like we like to know that you are in fact, that's why like 
um, like compounding pharmacies, they will, um, so your like doctors should always check in with the compounding pharmacy, making sure that it's a homogenous mix, got the best technology for that. And then you can actually use applicators that have a click. So they just, you just click it and it spurts out the amount you need and it measures it for you. So there's none of this, like get a teaspoon out, scrape it out, like all of that kind of thing. But it certainly is, um, a controversial thing. And I get, just really cautious with um, hormones that you get over the counter that you just haven't been able to vet the company very well. Um, because there are some companies that make like DHEA over the counter um, and it does, it does work well. Um, but then there's ones that I'm just like, I don't know anything about your company. I can't find anything about your company. Like that just makes me really nervous. Mm. It's a bit like melatonin, isn't it? I think there was masses of discrepancy in actually how much was in despite what's said but on the yeah. packaging. But it's interesting because here in the UK, you can't just go, you can't get DHEA. It would be prescription yeah. only. Same with progesterone. You can't get melatonin. Um, it's pretty strict. But I know in the States, you can yeah. pick these things up. Yeah. In the States, you can get access to a lot of stuff. The whole, um, the melatonin thing, I always find really interesting that I'm like, why wouldn't we let people have like low dose melatonin. Um, but you know, I, it's funny because, um, I have my own supplement company and people are always like, when are you going to send it to like Australia, for example? And they're, and people get really upset with me where they're like, why don't you make this available? And I'm like, your regulations are very different and very strict. Like Canada, for example, um, when you manufacture in Canada, you have to put claims on there. You have to be like, this is what I claim it treats. And like in the United States, you cannot have any claims and like all the regulations are so, so different. But um, I know someone was telling me that in Germany, you can't get vitamin C, I think it was. And I was like, that blows my mind. Like why, why vitamin C? Like of all things why is vitamin c problematic i think i think germany is really difficult i have a client in germany and she could just almost never order anything it's really really tricky um amazing you have literally linked to so much there i mean i just want to encourage people to go and read is this normal to really get the lowdown like every single thing we've touched on here is just in so much more detail in the book um every question that you might be too scared to ask right and and it's empowering as well because as you say there are kind of cheat sheets and diagrams and things that you can take and questionnaires that you can take to your doctor with you um how can people find more about you? I know you have a range of supplements. I'm guessing, given our discussion there, they're not available in the UK yet. Not yet. Not <laughs> <No>. yet. <laughs> yeah, not available in the UK yet. We are working on it, friends. But you can find me. My main hub is drbrighton.com, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N.com. And then I'm also on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at Brayton. So those are all the places that you can come and find me. Drbrighton.com has a plethora of resources, um, things that didn't make it into the book. You can find those there. And for people who are like, I had someone the other day that was like, I want to buy your book, but honestly, I'm so bad about reading books and I don't like, I can never get through them. And I'm like, well, here's good news. It's not meant for you to just sit down and read the whole thing. Although people will, it's meant that like, if you've got a question, if you want to explore a topic, you can get right into that, get the answers you want and keep moving. And you don't even have to do the, like, you don't have to read section one and two of the book to do the program. And I always try to write my books that way because I'm that person. I'm that person that's like, 
like, oh, halfway through, I'm losing interest. I didn't read the book. I didn't finish it. Um, so I'm like, how do we just make it so it's accessible to people? They just get the information they need because we're all very busy, especially if we're in the fourth decade of our life. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And it's really well indexed, as you say, and it's all list of questions. There's lots of doctors and practitioners actually that listen to this show. And so it's an amazing resource uh, for them as well to be able to just dive in and, and, and look up the detail and the research you've shared. Thank you so much. Your TikTok videos and your Instagrams are also very uh, like they're amusing as well they're really good content to watch oh, um, so definitely so definitely give dr jolene a follow um thank you so much for coming back on the show it's been such a pleasure yeah thank you for having me Thank you for listening to today's show and for your interest in health optimization for high performance. If you're new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that you can get a free health score and report complete with personalized recommendations on how to optimize your sleep, nutrition, fitness, and resilience in the top link in the show notes below. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Links to everything we talked about are also in the show notes. And if you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe for more.